Welcome to this episode of Season 4 of The Common Bridge, where policy and current events are discussed in a fiercely nonpartisan manner. The host, Richard Helpy, is a philanthropist, entrepreneur, and political analyst who has reached over 3.5 million listeners, viewers, and readers around the world. The Common Bridge is available on the Substack website and the Substack app. Just search for The Common Bridge. You can find the program on YouTube and wherever you get your podcasts. The Common Bridge draws guests and audiences from across the political spectrum, and we invite you to become a free or paid subscriber on your favorite medium. And welcome to The Common Bridge. My name is Brian Kruger, and I'm the producer of this show. And incidentally, I'm also the first opener of most emails, most letters to the editor and such. So what we're going to do today on The Common Bridge is we're going to read through some of those and get Rich's response, which I think will be a lot of fun. Rich, you ready to do something like that today? We're both going to find out together. So. <laughs> okay. Your first letter is from Mike Horn. He's a reader and a listener and a watcher. Cool. Anyway, he says, Rich, I love the show. While this isn't necessarily policy and solutions, I'd like to hear your take on New York Congressman George Santos. Oh, geez, right off the bat. Well, <laughs> Uh, George Santos. Okay. Uh, so what people would be expecting me to say is something like, well, gosh, look at Elizabeth Warren's claim to be Native American. Look at Joe Biden's claim to have graduated top of his class and have gone on a full academic ride or that Adam Schiff actually has a whistleblower or oodles of Russian information, etc. But I don't think that's really Jermaine, it just gets back into the right, left, red, blue, etc. I think this is just something, you know, Donald Trump, okay, is another guy people would expect me to say, well, of course, Trump paved the way. And of course, Trump seemed to say whatever popped into his head at that moment with really no strategy to it. And in fact, to his own detriment. But I really think it, it points to what we talk about on the common bridge. Both political parties are absolutely dysfunctional. They're not doing the job they're supposed to do, i.e. representing us. And the media, the you know newspapers or former newspapers now online, the uh, digital news programs, et cetera, aren't doing what they're supposed to do about ferreting out facts and truth. And, and George Santos is just the result of decades or probably hundreds of years of politicians making stuff up. And then coupled with this dysfunction, what do I mean by the dysfunction? The Republican Party obviously didn't vet the guy, okay, before they made him the candidate. The media reporting in New York never went in. And for Pete's sake, where is the opposition research that the Democrats should have on this guy? All three of them absolutely misfired. And... Now that he's there in Washington, people are going, well, you know, he's kind of not the first guy entering this pristine truth-telling environment. So, Rich, do you think that the demise of the local newspaper or even the regional newspaper and their associated newsrooms that used to research this kind of thing being gone has affected something like this? Do you think that 20 years ago this never would have happened. And it seems odd to me in the age of the internet where information is everywhere that it could be missed as well. Yeah, well, there is a vacuum there, clearly, that the old media model is dying. This is just one more symptom of it. How do you pay for that? 
there are some really good hyper local reporting systems and hyper local podcasts. I'm a big fan of Paid the Cost, which is Nativo Gonzalez in Santa Cruz, California, hyper local reporting. I think we need to get more of that. And I don't know, perhaps uh, there'll be a subscription model for those types of businesses and they'll become more searchable online because you do really have people on the ground working to get facts out. But yeah, it's, it's a failure. And why wasn't the Democratic op research all over this? And where were the Republicans <laughs> inventing them? I mean, there's, you know, inexcusable. Yeah, you're right about that. Well, moving on. Sean Phelan writes in, when are you going to have a guest on to talk about transgender rights in schools? I think you're afraid of the topic. <laughs> okay. I, I'd love to have someone come on to talk about transgender rights. And again, I think it's a subject that we should bring to the fore. And you're running into the collision of medical information. Again, there are people that are born indeterminate genitalia with chromosomes that are different, with sometimes secondary sex characteristics that are both. You have people that reach adulthood and they can do whatever they want to do with their body. But I think it gets down to what do we do about school-aged children who are going through adolescence? And again, I think that this hormone therapy and surgeries for people that aren't old enough to order a drink or cast a vote is going to come back to us as a hideous new lobotomy. And the fact that, well, we're not going to allow parents to be involved is a little crazy, particularly right now when we have parents that are jailed because of the crimes that their children have committed. So you can't have it both ways. I think we need to get it out onto the fore and have a discussion about what makes sense. And I'd love to have a, a great guest. You know, Brian, we do invite a lot of people to come onto the show that won't come on. They're very comfortable going into soundbite world, affirmation programming, and they don't want to hear the thoughtful question. They don't want to hear the countervailing points of view, and they just won't come on. We've had a number of guests that have agreed to be on the show, and we've presented them. Here's the outline. Here's the things we'd like to talk about. They are framed as questions, and that they, once they look at the outline, they don't want to be on the show. And that's their prerogative. They're still playing in that old affirmation programming world. We're not there. Well, I think in fairness too, Rich, we're approaching the 200th episode here. I think we're at 193 now. We've only had a couple that have backed out since looking at the outline and going, yeah, I don't know. And we kind of knew who they were. I think I'd put that under five. That's under a handful of those. So uh, while that has happened, I think you've had a lot of great guests come out as well. Yeah, and look, most of the folks that do come on appreciate the wide-ranging discussion. Most of them, I don't think, are hearing anything that they haven't heard privately before, and they're happy to have the discussion. So some, you know, things that are fairly controversial, like ranked choice voting is one. You know, what's the nuance behind that and proportional voting and what's the nuance behind those types of stories. Law enforcement, what's working, what's not working. So hopefully we'll continue to get guests. Anyone that comes on will be treated respectfully. Uh, they'll have opportunity to review things in advance and we don't do gotcha questions. We're here to inform, not to influence. Okay, this one's from Jesse Dugan, who's a Substack subscriber. We like that. And I like this one because it appears that Jesse has a long history with the show because he references something that you've covered over the last few seasons, and that's your gun control policy. 
And this might appear a little bit as a shot, but I don't think so. Jesse asks, how would your gun training and progressive licensing program have worked with the six-year-old in Virginia who shot his teacher? Well, the way it would have worked is that there's provisions in the idea for safe storage requirements. So if you want to have a firearm in your house, then you may, with the proviso that you secure it, and that firearm with today's technology and gun vaults and the like can be readily available should the need for home protection arise without it being accessible to a six-year-old. So had law been in place, had the law been followed, the tragedy would not have occurred. Although I should probably point out that there are states like California that do have safe storage requirements and people just don't follow it, which is an issue, obviously. And thanks, Jesse, for writing that. And thanks for being a Substack subscriber as well and writing in. So we encourage everybody to be in the Substack world with us. This next letter is from Eric Finley, and it's about an episode that you did with Matt Rosenberg called Progressive Agenda in Chicago. And it dealt with how things in Chicago are kind of falling apart and how he puts that on the back of the progressive city council and mayor and such. Anyway, Eric writes, why just focus on Chicago? Name me a major U.S. city where this isn't the case. Okay, well, it'd be difficult to recap that entire episode. I'd invite people to go back and listen and also to read Matt Rosenberg's book, which is quite good. He is a real reporter. He knows the city. He walked hundreds of miles. He talked to lots of people. And what he really pointed out was the breakdown of the nuclear family and particularly people, young men, especially being raised in homes without fathers, no accountability, that the allegiance can be to something outside the home. Tragically, too often that can be a gang, but it's not just gang type members that are involved. It's the public and the innocence around them as things spill over. Then when we talk about what happens when somebody is arrested for doing something and they're not held, they're not punished, they're not held accountable, they're right back out there again. And I think Rosenberg's big point was we pay these taxes, our education system is horrible, that should be a basic function. Our public safety which is not something you can privatize, has been absolutely compromised. And we're being told that we, the law-abiding citizens, just trying to make their way through life, are the problem. And the reason it was about Chicago is because that's what Matt wrote about with Chicago, which he knew. Certainly someone could write that same story about New York. I've been in Los Angeles recently. I haven't been to San Francisco for several years basically because they've deteriorated so badly. But the root of it is we're not looking out after taxpayers, homeowners, people trying to educate their kids. Those that can flee. I think what Eric Finley's trying to say, though, is that why pick on Chicago when the exact same thing is happening in all the major cities around the U.S.? Yeah, right. No, Chicago's not necessarily an outlier. And people keep voting folks in that do these things. Now, I will tell you, there's there's one, and maybe call me a, a homer or a, a, an optimist, uh, but I see a lot of good things happening in Detroit. We still have issues. We still have too much violence. We still have too many fatherless homes, but there's so many good things that are happening in the city itself. 
and because people have finally gotten tired of accepting a city that was dysfunctional. And you know, frankly, the bankruptcy uh, really helped. And that was a collaboration of a Republican governor and Rick Snyder and a Democratic mayor in Mike Duggan. And so bonds that were never really going to get paid back were bankrupted. And now that money has gone to new police cars and streetlights and cleaning the streets and so forth. And there's been a lot of investment in the town. Some of the wealthier families have taken on parts of the city to revitalize and refurbish. I mean, look, we got ways to go, but uh, you know, I think things are moving along. Rich, I couldn't agree more. Detroit is a great story. Our next letter is from John Abel, and it's regarding Dr. James Baker's last appearance in studio back in November. Of course, Dr. Baker would come on from time to time throughout the pandemic to give us a fair assessment of what's going on with COVID. And John Abel wrote in, you could have stopped at politics, manufactured, marketed, distributed, and sold as a deadly virus, never amounted to jack squat, smoke and mirrors, misdirection, sheep. It was the flu and pneumonia Toretto. I looked up Toretto, and I think he's making a reference to a Vin Diesel movie called Fast and Furious, but that's for another time. He continues, nothing changed before, during, or after the Rona except the truth and the cover-up. And then he signs it, FJB MAGA Trump 2024, Although that's kind of a funny letter. What's your take on Dr. James Baker's visits and speak more to what John Abel is saying in his letter? Well, I think there's suspicions out there. I know that the writer is not alone in his thinking. And I remember when the coronavirus was first discovered and uh, I, I recall you and I were having a conversation about, well, are we doing too much? And I said, you know, there's just too many unknowns. And we've been trying to get the number of unknowns reduced and try to get the right knowns in there. I can tell you definitively that hospitals and emergency rooms were overwhelmed with COVID patients. We had governors in New York and in Michigan that sent COVID positive patients back into nursing homes where we had deadly consequences. We did not respond as a good society that's following strong public health reaction. And so to the point about was the crisis seized for something else, I think that there's probably valid reason to at least be suspicious of that. And I punctuate that by looking at the recent midterm elections and those governors that were most extreme in how they closed the society and shut down schools and so forth, did not run on that. And in fact, our newly reelected governor in Michigan scoffed and said, what, kids were out of school three months? And <laughs> as if, you know, let them eat cake. They were out of a lot more than that. And so they're not doing themselves any favors. Now, couple that with, we had a president in the White House at the beginning, in Donald Trump, who seemed to think that the daily briefings were a show about him and proved himself to be a horrible crisis manager, was not a steady hand on the tiller, when he easily could have said, look, we're going to protect the vulnerable. We're going to make sure that every 
hospital and physician office has all the equipment and supplies they need to deal with sick people. We are going to accelerate trying to find a vaccine or therapeutic. And if people are going to be harmed economically, we're going to step in and make sure that through no fault of their own, we're going to make sure that they're supported. And the weird thing is they they did, the Trump administration did all those things, but all the peripheral stuff and the antics and no focus, people didn't know where to turn. And so where did they turn? They went to social media and you saw things get divided into the COVID is a hoax. It doesn't really exist. I don't know anybody that got it. Uh, it's a mild cold, et cetera. And to the other side, it's like the coming of the you know, some Stephen King novel or something, and we're going to wash our groceries and, and the like. And and by the way, that, that divide in who to trust exists today. People talk about who should wear masks, who shouldn't wear masks. And I see it here in Ann Arbor all the time. I see people out walking in the fresh air wearing a mask. There's no case for doing that. And whether a person chose to be vaccinated or was coerced into being vaccinated or not, that was a decision made at a point in time. And, you know, circumstances have changed. What we know has changed. But I still think it speaks to the core problem. It's this thirst for knowledge and real facts. And we don't have a media system delivering that to us. And so I'll I'll end this response by Again, recommending Dr. Baker's blog. It's called Pandemic Pondering. I don't think Dr. Baker has a political bone in his body. He's eminently qualified. Of course, I'd like you to listen to the four or five episodes he's been on with us. But look up Pandemic Pondering, Dr. James Baker, University of Michigan Medicine. Pandemic Pondering is great. Now we're going to move to an episode you did on November the 9th called Thank Goodness Campaign Season Ends. And this one had about 250 or 300 responses within the first day. And most of them were really funny because they all agreed with you. (laughs) And you got one specifically from Lyndon Willingham. And Lyndon writes, what a relief. I went totally to PBS and BBC for news and only checked in locally for weather reports briefly. Mute button got a lot of use in the past few weeks. The (laughs) negative ads are so utterly toxic. I just did not want that noise in my house. Turns out. PBS and BBC are excellent resources for news. And the reason that I'm bringing this to you is I think that speaks generally to what you always speak about, and that is try to listen to different news sources. Don't always rely on CNN, Fox. They're going to tell you exactly what they're going to tell you, but sort of look at other sources. And I think that's what Lyndon is saying here. What are your thoughts on uh, Lyndon Willingham's letter? It's not an irrational response. You know what you're going to get when you turn on Fox. You know what you're going to get when you turn on CNN. CNN is trying to make a pivot against tremendous resistance from the base that wanted the affirmation programming. The five viewers left at MSNBC know what (laughs) they're going to get. So I, I think getting different sources is important. And I'd recommend a lot of the writers at Substack who actually go out and do reporting. There is a lot of free stuff there and there's a lot of paid stuff, but more and better information is available other than the stuff that we're getting served up. And if you recall, Brian, when we started this show and people have asked me, well, how do we quit having the politicians polarize us 
And how do we quit having the legacy media and the cable media and the former news media quit feeding us this stuff? The answer is real simple. Quit consuming it. <laughs> they're going to get the idea. You quit buying it, they're not going to do it. Right. <laughs> they're only doing it because people are buying it. So stop buying it. Tell your friends to quit buying it and go elsewhere. <laughs> right. What I like about Lyndon's letter, though, is Lyndon refers to PBS, but also to BBC. And there was a lot of arguments, not even arguments, kind of they're agreeing with each other and then kind of having fun about BBC being a conservative outlet in Europe. And what it really said to me is you've got a huge following in Europe. Your following is really all over the world. But I got a kick out of the fact that the common bridge was being argued about in, uh, in, in Great Britain. Yeah, no, I know we have a great following in London. Hello, Londoners. So I, I think it's a healthy discussion. And look, PBS doesn't always get it right. BBC doesn't always get it right. But the media model has been flipped from let's go and discover what the facts are and interview people and look at documents and write that versus here's the narrative. And now let's fill in the blanks. Uh, we're going to have a guest coming on pretty soon. Justin Higgins is coming back. We're going to talk about the stories that are covered in Washington versus, you know, I'm not speaking for the whole Great Lakes or whole rest of the country, but I'm just astonished that the whole Hamilton 68 issue and the media fraud that went on and made Jason Blair look like a piker is not front page news. And then it occurred to me, well, that was used by every major news outlet. And maybe they just say, well, we don't want to talk about this anymore. Yeah. Getting Justin Higgins back on the show is great. He's good on the common bridge and you're good on his show as well. Yes. Just to wrap up this, thank goodness campaign season ends letters to the editor. Ken Wolf writes now for the Medicare and Camp Lejeune lawsuit adds to end, which I thought was a pretty good twist on that. Yeah. Well, um, we do have uh, Mike Cox scheduled. Uh, Mike is a attorney of some renown. He was the attorney general of the state of Michigan. He's also a former Marine and he is um, in the middle of some of those suits and he's going to come on and inform us about that and what the status of that is. Again, you see the ads, you know something happened. How many people know what the backstory is and where's the reporting been on that? So, Okay, let's move along to medical assistance in dying. And that was just a few weeks ago. We had Dr. Nicholas Tito on and it was a wonderful episode and it garnered a lot of viewer mail and listener mail and responses as well. And just to recap, it had something to do with Canada's MAID laws, and that's medical assistance in dying. And this letter is from Grace Thurman, and she writes, y'all are using this to kill disabled people instead of adjusting society to support and accommodate them. Don't even try to lie. I know too many Canadians who have the wool pulled over my eyes, including a disabled individual who had medical assistance in dying or made recommended to them when they sought an increase in financial support to cover the rising cost of living. And that seems somewhat cynical, but I thought it was a very interesting and moving letter. And I'm going to add another one in here before you comment. Maybe you can comment on both of them. This is from Charles Murray Chilton. I'm a supporter of one's right to be euthanized. In fact, I would expand the criteria far beyond where they stand now. It's not only about the trillions spent worldwide to keep an empty carbon assembly breathing, wow, and pulse. 
If I don't know my wife and I can't drink water or eat because I don't know what food or water is for, please let me have the choice to go. I think both of these letters are very germane to the subject matter. And I thought the conversation with Dr. Chito was excellent. And I hope people will listen to it because it's very thoughtful. It's not advocacy and it's not opposition at all. It's just this is a very big societal effort. But I would divide it like this. There is a medical need and people with no hope of recovery that might be in agonizing pain, end stage of a disease and not be able to function. And that if they, as uh, Mr. Murray wrote, choose to end their life, they should have the means to do that or assistance if they you know, can't get out of bed to do that. I think that's one category. And, and then the, the first writer saying, hey, this is going to be used on disabled people and it's a slippery slope. And that writer would be in agreement with what the indigenous peoples of Canada, or first peoples as they refer to them, said when this law was being enhanced with even broader eligibility standards. And so if people listen to the episode, we begin by saying, go to the Canadian government's website, canada.ca, go to justice, that's the next level, and then go and look at what they're saying about the made medical assistance in dying law. And the important change come March 17th is that you don't need a medical diagnosis. A mental health diagnosis is all that it takes. So think about this, Brian. A person is depressed and has suicidal ideation. Today, we say, look, we've got to deal with your depression, and we have lots of therapies and medications and ways to deal with that. It just seems to me to be barbaric to say, here's a person with suicidal ideation, and we say, well, great, we'll give you a hand. And so I think we need to understand what this kind of power unleashed can do. And, you know, I know that there are people that believe if we're If we go to this next step where there doesn't even have to be a medical condition, and and I believe the word they use is irremediable, it was pretty definitive. You weren't coming out of that condition that Mr. Murray writes about. You're a goner, okay, so to speak. And is there a dignified way to end your life? You know, I think there's a a moral justification for that with appropriate guardrails on it. The troubling part is, you know— Forget about all that. You know, if you just have a mental health diagnosis and then there's a long list of people that can assist you without facing a criminal consequence. And I just think the opportunities for abuse are are pretty high. And it is something that we need to keep an eye on because the next logical step would be mandated termination. Well, that certainly gets really scary. Yeah, it's very scary. I mean, again, nobody knows for sure what's going to happen, and I don't mean to be an alarmist, uh, but people need to understand where the law is today and be thoughtful about whether it's the right one or not, who it'll be applied to, and so forth. Okay, this next one is from another recent podcast with Adam Coleman, and it was titled, Does Mass Media Lie About Conservatives? And this letter comes from Marcus Adams. Every time the media 
calls radical right-wing reactionaries, quote-unquote, conservatives. They lie about conservatives. The, quote-unquote, conservatives on the Supreme Court are an excellent example of this. It is not conservatives to bring about radical change. What are your thoughts on that? Well, I I think the writer's got a great point, is that um, anything that doesn't fit the agenda of of a left-leaning publication is by definition conservative, and it's going to be a radical right-wing approach. And I hope people listen to Adam Coleman because he is a very thoughtful and insightful guy. He backs up what he says with his own real-world experience. And one of the things he says that nobody wants to talk about is the correlation between fatherless childhoods and the mass shooters. And my dearly departed father, he and I got along on certain levels and didn't on other levels. But I know for sure that I'd have to answer to him as the first line of authority. And I guarantee you that is something. And uh, we need to teach young men how to be good fathers. We need to teach them how to become good men and to help build great communities. And that's, I think, If that's a conservative principle, great. I would hope it'd be a universal principle. But if that's a conservative principle in today's world, that would be bringing about radical change to come out and say it's better to have a father in the house with the proviso that the father performs as the father versus somebody that's damaging to the spouse or children. Do you think you'd get pushback on that today from the feminist movement or feminists? I think it would depend on the feminist. I think there's another category that people wrap up in one definition. And look, I can tell you in my business career where we had a lot of women, 45% in upper management, and looking back and understanding that, wow, they were often the only woman in the room during big and important meetings. There might be 20 people in there, all guys wearing white shirts and blue suits and power ties and the like. And what a different experience that must have been for them. I mean, they had the opportunity, but they were clearly in the minority. And I've had many family members also that really were pioneers. That's just in my lifetime. So to lump them in then with a more radical fringe that wants to adopt the term feminism, I don't think is fair. So again, that's one of those labels that we just have to be careful about. So as we wrap this up, I'm going to sprinkle in a couple of more positive notes back. This from Mike Crabtree. Rich, looking forward to your continued success with the Common Bridge in 2023. And from Rayma Gagnon Hogan, congratulations on your fourth season. I always learn something each time I tune in. So I think those are great. And if you'd like to take this home, go ahead and do it. Well, thank you, Mike and Rayma and anyone else. Certainly the encouragement is uplifting and I do dearly appreciate it. And so I guess on a closing comment, Brian, there can't be a show unless there's guests and an audience. And I'm grateful to the guests. I'm grateful for the audience. I'm doing my best to be informative versus influencing, trying to open up dialogue so that we can have discussion. And thanks to your great work on producing, putting together nice programs for us. It's the discussion. It's the exchange of ideas. It's the delving into subject matter 
is the only thing that's going to keep us out of a bitter partisan divide and a civil war. We're not going to convince somebody of a particular ideology to adopt an opposite one, but maybe we can find places we agree. You know, should we have clean drinking water? I think think we can agree on that. You know, can we have safe schools that give our kids an education that'll allow them to have a good life in adulthood. I hope we can agree on that. Can we have streets that are safe? And then another topic, what's our right to privacy? What's our right to be forgiven and forgotten about maybe something we did as a younger person? I know Bill Maher talks about this. He has a term called presentism. I think it's his term. To hold somebody's behavior in 1968 to the standards of 2023 is a little absurd because people are part of the society. So this is what I think we can do. We can inform, we can invite commentary, and I do appreciate these comments. And I hope that we keep getting more and that that people will just talk. Well, that's a good way to wrap this up. And let's remind all of our viewers, listeners, and readers out there to join us on Substack because we'd really like to get you over to that platform as our main outlet. Great. Yeah. And Substack's really designed for writers and then writers expanding into audio and video. And we're kind of coming the opposite direction. And so right now, I think it's the best thing as far as a new media model. Is it 100% perfect? Certainly not. But it's, I think, a noble attempt at getting us back to what journalism's supposed to be. And your participation in that and support of the show is very meaningful. Again, leave that old stuff behind. They will not change as long as they have an audience. This is Rich Helpy signing off on The Common Bridge. Thanks for joining us on The Common Bridge. Subscribe to The Common Bridge on Substack.com or use their Substack app where you can find more interviews, columns, videos, and nonpartisan discussions of the day. Just search for The Common Bridge. You can also find The Common Bridge on Mission Control Radio on your Radio Garden app.